Hello, Podcast Nation. You are listening to my autobiography, Tina Lives, written and read by me, Tina. Who am I? Nobody. But when asked the simplest questions in life, like, where are you from? There was never a simple answer. So I decided to jot the answers down in a book about growing up hippie, surviving the South, and getting the hell out, which is why Tina Lives. Episode 3, Tina Lives. June 5th, 1968, a day to remember, five years old. We were at my grandma Angelina's house in Cleveland with a few of my aunts. My grandmother, whom I loved, was short and spunky with a big poof of white wavy hair and eyes that shone bright and shiny with a twinkle of the crazy. She had once taken a chainsaw to the dining room table because her husband would not buy her a new one. I was told that she was just as volatile and unpredictable as my mother, but she was never that way with me, and my favorite place to be was with her in her kitchen, where I would sit at the kids' table, watching as she stirred a giant pot of dandelion greens or stuffed flank steak with garlic and herbs. She always wore an apron, and the strings were forever lost in the rolls of her fat. We had an easy rapport, and I wanted to live with her. At one point, there was talk of her taking guardianship of me, but unfortunately, that never happened. No one ever told me why I might need to live with Grandma Angelina other than, that's for us to know and you to find out. On this June day, I ran inside the house after playing outside in the backyard. I let the screen door slam behind me like I had done so many times before. But today, the sound of the slamming door reverberated through the neighborhood, which I noticed for the first time to be unusually hushed and silent. I walked into the living room with a curious trepidation because it was dark and the shades were drawn. All was quiet except for the sounds of muffled tears and the whispered words, no Lord, no Lord, no Lord. My mother sat on the couch, frozen like a statue, while my little sister Lisa slept in her lap. She was staring intently at a tiny black and white television. She looked vulnerable and defeated, as if someone had poured a pail of cold water on her fiery personality, dampening her harsh flames. She didn't even notice me coming into the room, which filled me with a sense of courage and relief. Something more heinous and pretentious had caught her attention, and my aunts looked bewildered and devastated as their heads were lowered in sorrow. They watched the television as if whatever was happening on the screen was very personal to our family. On normal days, I would have bombarded them with my never-ending questions, but today wasn't normal, and I knew well enough to keep my mouth shut. It didn't take long to figure out that another Kennedy had been shot and killed. The other brother, Bobby. Senator Robert Francis Kennedy died at 144 
a.m. today, June 6, 1968, with Senator Kennedy at the time of his death, where his wife, Ethel, his sisters, Mrs. Stephen Smith, Mrs. Patricia Lawford, brother-in-law, Mr. Stephen Smith, his sister-in-law, Mrs. John F. Kennedy. He was uh, 42 years old. Nineteen sixty-nine, after the fire. For a brief period after the fire, we moved in with Paul, the new boyfriend, until the city fast-tracked us into an apartment in the projects. We started our new life pretty much from scratch, although we did acquire a new father figure. His first official date with my mother had been on the night of the fire, and my mom, being no slouch when it came to getting men, played the damsel in distress quite well. She got herself a man with a job, a vision for the future, and a personality so laid back that one crazy Italian woman and four willful children were not enough to ruffle his feathers. Paul's personality was the complete opposite of my dad's. His looks were more on the dapper side, and he didn't have one macho bone in his body. He was socially conscious and politically minded, and he worked as a VISTA volunteer with the Legal Aid Society. He spoke in soft, gentle tones and never raised his voice. He was not the kind of man who would own a hot rod or decorate his knuckles with brazen blue tattoos. Our new home in the projects was nestled in a landscape of brick and concrete buildings, overshadowed by the tall gray smokestacks of the Cleveland steel factories, forever spewing plumes of white smoke. The billowing exhaust would light up the nighttime sky, and in the morning we would go out and play in the residue of soot, grime, and metal shards. All the kids in the neighborhood would congregate on a very large mound of dirt that was littered with metal poles. I would stand on top of the mound and orchestrate games of cops and robbers and chiefs and Indians. We used the poles and sticks as batons in whatever game of aggression we were acting out. While I was commanding the troops and Paul was out working, my mother would hold court in our apartment, imposing her strong opinions on the neighbors. She hung out with a group of black women who wore gold fingernail polish and grew their nails so long they would curl around like pinwheels attached to the end of their fingers. My loosely Catholic upbringing had taught me that it was impolite to stare, but I was a practical kid, and I couldn't quite figure out how someone went about their daily business wearing their nails like that. The question was far too intriguing, and I couldn't take my eyes off them. What became of our bohemian lifestyle developed gradually with each and every penny that Paul and Diana tossed into a penny jar. They were trying to save up enough money to buy a camper van to get us out to California to live with a new kind of people called the hippies. 
My mother had been born an eccentric rebel, and the hippie spoke a language that she could understand. Freedom was the key word here, and Diana needed lots of it. The conventional restraints of the squares would have been death for her, but the free will and hippie lifestyle was right up her alley. Paul, being more socially minded, was in it for the politics. He wanted to change the world for the better while simultaneously fulfilling his adventurous spirit. They had both been raised Catholic and seemed to find it difficult to break away from those traditions, which is why I went to a Catholic elementary school. I didn't do well as a Catholic schoolgirl, and I was held back in the second grade for bad behavior. I was caught stealing the sugary sweets from lunchboxes and starting fires in the hallways with wooden matches. The most notorious of my crimes was the burning of the Bible. Not because I was self-righteously anti-religious at that age, but only because the Bible was paper and it burned well. Here comes the bride and groom making news, news, news. Paul and Diana were married in June of 1969, six months after the fire. Their wedding made the local paper because my mother wore an off-white lacy pantsuit instead of a dress. Shortly after the wedding, the pennies were added up, and there was finally enough money to buy the dream van that they had been saving for. But it wasn't a van at all. It was a bus. The outside of the bus wasn't pretty, but it was sturdy, like a fortress. Nothing got in and nothing got out. It was combat green, and the word redoubt was painted in bold black letters above the windshield. The inside of the bus had been converted to a camper with bunk beds, a bathroom, a stove, and a table. It was a little house on wheels with a front door that opened and closed with a metal lever. The summer of 1969 wasn't waiting for anyone. Things were happening in America, not so much in Cleveland, and we were already late for the party. So we packed up, moved into the bus, and hit the road for California. Summer of 1969, turning seven years old. California, here we come. Once we got on the highway, I could feel the magnitude of our adventure. The large black and white signs that read speed limit 75 went whizzing by, as did the anxieties that tormented me in Cleveland. A small twinge of hopefulness tried to find its way into my heart, but I didn't get too excited. I toyed with the idea that this new lifestyle would ease the pressure on Diana, and therefore we could have a peaceful family life. She wanted to travel, and she wanted to be free, and Paul had made that happen for her. So she should be happy now. At least that's what I thought. Something about watching the ever-changing landscape gave me a new tool to deal with Diana's moodiness, which seesawed between the extremes of infuriated and foggy. Whenever she would turn frightening, I would shift into the same trance that I experienced while looking out the window of the bus. This became a very beneficial exercise because I found out quickly 
that being on the road did not curtail the barrage of insults my mother hurled my way. As she would tell me how fat and ugly I was and what a big mouth I had, I would stand or sit at attention and visualize the sea of cornfields or the green blur of pine trees. She would always end her tirade with the sweet little suggestion that I did not belong in the family. I knew she was right about the big mouth because I was a very social kid who, just like my mother, would talk to anyone who listened. But I wasn't fat. I couldn't be. She hardly fed me. Our first pit stop was in South Bend, Indiana, Paul's hometown. We were going to meet his parents and his brother, who was studying to be a priest at the University of Notre Dame. Parking our big green monstrosity in front of Paul's parents' house screamed out to the neighbors that the freak show had come to town. South Bend was so lily-white compared to Cleveland that I thought I might be too dirty to step outside of the bus. But it was a fun visit because I got to watch my mother tread uncomfortably outside of her element while desperately trying to control her forceful and wild nature. She had to be on her best behavior to impress Paul's parents, and you could tell that she wasn't doing a good job. I relished her inadequacies as we ate scrambled eggs and white toast around the breakfast table, which was stilted by silence and obvious disappointment. Paul's parents were quiet and reserved compared to our loud Italian family, but I liked that about them. Their house was soothing and calm, and I almost felt safe there, except for the dead animals that were scattered around the living room. They had stalking eyes that would follow you, and some had their mouths opened in threatening snarls. I had never seen such a thing, and it was truly awe-inspiring but I remember having the same reaction to taxidermy as I did the pinwheel fingernails from the projects. Why would anyone do this? What's the sense of it? Back on the road, Paul taught us travel games to pass the time. He would also play a Peter, Paul, and Mary cassette, which had Puff the Magic Dragon on it. On the occasions when Diana would get lost in her foggy thoughts, Kathy, Tony, Lisa, and I would feel confident enough to sing along. There was something sad and haunting in the melody, which I believed all of us kids could relate to. Our next stop was in Chicago to honor a friend of Paul's at a museum. My mother dressed us up in our very finest, including putting ribbons in our hair. She herself looked very beautiful that day, but you could sense that something was not quite right. Her mood was stiff, and her eyes were foggy, as if her body wanted to rage, but her mind wanted to escape. The museum was extraordinarily large and ornate, and I felt like an ant because everything was so big. There were columns wider than me, benches made of marble, gigantic art in golden frames, and humongous rooms that echoed loudly with the sound of chattering adults. I wanted to touch everything I saw, and that really pissed my mother off. My hand would reach out reflexively to feel and to sense, and Diana's hand would reflexively reach out to slap it back. There were moments, though, when the magnificence of the place enraptured us so much that we actually felt like a happy little family. 
being surrounded by so much beauty made it hard for Diana to sustain her animosity and angst. But she did, and her bad mood was simply due to the fact that she wasn't the center of attention. Paul's friend was, and that made Diana cranky and unbearable. She carried her jealous fury out of Chicago and all the way into the blistering, arid heat of the South Dakota Badlands. The bus wasn't air-conditioned, so while her emotions overheated with any perceived slight, the miles crept slowly by, one inch of double yellow line at a time. When my mother slunk into one of her moods, the bus became the most claustrophobic place on the face of the earth, and life didn't feel any more spacious outside of the bus, even as we posed ironically in front of a sign that read, The Big Bad Lands. They were bad, all right, and once we got an uncooperative goat who had wandered into the bus out, we hit the road for more of the same. America. America.